Thank you, Nancy. All right, remember today is a family service, so the kiddos are going to hang out with us today. All right, Brian. I want to use one that's in the pew in front of you. It's going to be page 794. And uh, we'll be looking at the passage a little bit as we go along. This is probably not the passage that you would expect for Christmas morning, is it? Um, a vision from out of an obscure part of the Old Testament. But actually, it has a lot to do with Christmas. We've been doing a series through the Advent season on hope, um, as, as Paul just spoke about and prayed, and, uh, and this morning's title is called Hope for the Sinful. But if we wanted to title it something else, we could call this vision uh, the reason for Christmas, or the foundation for Christmas, or something like this. It's a, it's a spectacular vision, and I hope as we go along that... Um, that you'll be able to see how this helps us understand the Christmas event of the Lord's birth. Christmas is a time of expectation, isn't it? There's a big build-up to tomorrow morning. Uh, the Christmas trees and things come out into the stores earlier and earlier each year as the, as the merchants hope to cash in off of that expectation. And uh, it's going to, God rest you, merry gentlemen, all the spectacular joy and hope and fun of the season. Um, but for some, it's not, is it? For some, this is a difficult time of year, whether it's uh, grief remembering someone who's gone or perhaps fractured relationships. Uh, for some, the expectations aren't as good, but it's still a time of expectation. And I think the idea of expectation, and, and particularly unmet expectations, are what we're dealing with here in this vision. So Zechariah, let me explain that a little bit. Zechariah was a prophet from Judah, and he had come back with about 50,000 other people from exile in Babylon. For centuries, the Jews had ignored um, the Lord and his, his requests for them and how they should obey and follow him. And after centuries of disobedience, God finally said, that's it. And he sent them off into exile, away from the land. And while they were in Babylon for 70 years, they, they remembered Jerusalem. They remembered Judah. And they wanted to go home. And they sang songs of it. Some of the psalms are from that period of time. And then they got to go home. And for some of those people, a lot of those people, they never would have seen Judah and Jerusalem before. They were born in Babylon. Some of them were, were the older folks and they were coming back. But some of them, it was the first time. And as they climbed the Judean hills and they came over to Jerusalem, the, the great city, guess what they saw? Just 
rubble. The Babylonians had destroyed it. It had not been rebuilt. The houses were broken down. The walls were just piles of rock. The temple had been burnt. And they were discouraged. All the expectations met with that. And as they came to Jerusalem and they realized the difficulty that was going to be theirs of to rebuild it, and they found that the people there weren't all that excited to have new folks come in and try to take control of the place. Discouragement was all over. And this prophecy was written to those discouraged, disillusioned, hopeless people. And it was a message that they had, they had not been forgotten, that God knew about them, that he was watching them, and that he had a plan for them and was going to carry it forward. And so Zechariah writes this vision and writes this prophecy for those discouraged people. Um, the first part of this book is eight visions. They don't know for sure, but it, it seems as though all eight visions came in one night. So Charles Dickens, Ebenezer Scrooge has nothing, got nothing on Zechariah. Was, his was just three ghosts. Zechariah had seven or eight, sorry, eight visions in one night. And if you look at it there with me, it's a vision in which Joshua is showed by, it just says, he showed me, that's probably the angel who was uh, talking with him in, earlier in the book. And Joshua the high priest was standing before the angel of the Lord. And Satan is at his right hand. Now that's a bit odd because the right hand was usually a good place. That's where your defense attorney stood. That's where your help stood. But in this case, the adversary, that's what Satan means, uh, the accuser was standing there at his right hand. And he was accusing Joshua, and Joshua was clothed with filthy garments. Now, he's not allowed to stand before the Lord in filthy garments, so we already see the problem there. And uh, Satan appears to be accusing him for trying to do his high priestly duties in robes that are unacceptable to the Lord. And the angel of the Lord steps in and rebukes Satan, and he says, take off those filthy garments and put on these clean, pure ones with a turban. And the angel of the Lord accomplishes all that. Then he says to Joshua in verse 6, If you will walk in my ways and keep my charge, you'll have rule over the temple and the temple courts, and you'll have access here into the throne room of God himself, which is where this is taking place. And then he predicts, uh, then, then the angel of the Lord says, here is what the Lord of hosts says, and he predicts that this servant, the branch, the stone, will come and remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. Well, that's the vision. That's what Joshua sees. And, uh, and so I would like to go through this vision uh, in this way. We'll do... Um, Is that gonna? Is there another slide there? You guys can advance it. There. We'll look in verses one through six or one through five. Actually, the transformation of the first Joshua. Then we'll look at the task of Joshua in verses 
seven and eight, and then, um, or six and seven, and then in eight through 10, this prediction of the second Joshua. Now the reason that I put it that way is Joshua is, is a Hebrew name. Jesus is a name that's written in Greek, but it's the Greek name of Joshua. So we've got Joshua here, the high priest, and we have Joshua, which is Jesus' Hebrew name. So that's the, that's the first and second Joshua thing that's going on there. The first Joshua is the high priest. Second Joshua is this prediction of our Lord Jesus Christ. The second thing that I want you to notice here, and this is why this vision is so relevant and poignant, is that it's in this vision that we see that the angel of the Lord is actually the, the Son of God before he becomes Jesus. And so we have, we have the Lord himself, the Lord of hosts, he's called in verse 6, and then we have the angel of the Lord. And yet we see that the angel of the Lord is referred to as the Lord. Look in verse 2. The Lord said to Satan, the Lord rebuke you. Well, that's the angel saying, Lord, the Father will rebuke you. He refers to the Lord. So what we have here is actually Jesus before he was Jesus. Does that make sense? And so as we look at this, we can see already uh, this is a, a, a poignant vision of what is going to happen. Now this is a vision. And a vision is different than a dream. We know the uh, almost inspired song that a dream is a wish your heart makes when you're fast asleep. Do you recognize that? It's Cinderella. So it's not quite inspired. A vi uh, now the Lord did speak in dreams. He would have his angels come in dreams to speak to people. In fact, uh, Joseph, Jesus' father, was told in a dream that he should marry the, the, his fiance, his betrothed Mary, because the baby in her womb was from the Holy Spirit. That was in a dream. It was also in a dream that he was told to go to Egypt. So the Lord did work in dreams. But a vision is something a little bit different. And maybe the easiest way to say it is this, that in a dream, the Lord will come to a person and communicate with them. But in a vision, they're allowed to see into a different realm. So the, the messenger sees and goes somewhere else to see something that's going on. And so this vision right away is a challenge to us, especially for us in the West, because we tend to think that the only thing that's real is this thing that we see. That, that nothing is outside of our world. We live in a closed system. But what Zechariah is privileged is to do is to see into another realm, that there are beings, there is a God who is watching and who is the one who is, who is judgment and his decisions are all important. And so we're challenged right away that we have something beyond ourselves and, uh, and that being rules supreme. So it's with that idea that we have been visited from on high, as the, as the song just said, from this other realm that we have to read and understand this vision. Um, and so let's, let's just go through it quickly and see what it has to say 
to us, the transformation of the first Joshua. Joshua the high priest is standing before the angel of the Lord, and Satan is there at his right hand. Now Joshua is obviously a person, he's the high priest, but in this vision he's actually the representative of the people of God. That's, that was the high priest's job, wasn't he? He was the representative before God of God's people, and it's that role that he's playing here. He's standing before the angel of the Lord, before this Son of God, and, and he represents God's people. You can see that, not just because that was his job, but you can see that when, when the angel rebukes Satan, he says the Lord has chosen Jerusalem. He doesn't say the Lord has chosen Joshua. He says the Lord has chosen Jerusalem because Joshua is representing the Lord's people. So as this representative, as this brand plucked from the fire, which means the people who had been in the furnace of exile, now they had been brought back to the land. These people were standing before God in filthy garments. And these aren't just filthy garments like you're out playing in the grass and mud. This is filthy. The word there is more like they just crawled out of the sewer filthy. Totally unacceptable to God. No priest ever would appear at the temple or the tabernacle in such an outfit. And that's why Satan is accusing him. Because here he is, the representative of the people, and Satan is saying, your people are so sinful. They are so unacceptable. How can you let this be? Not only are they pathetic, but you're pathetic for allowing this to happen. You can see that the, the accuser is honing in on the fact that God's people, even after all they've been through, still the sin clings to them as one has a filthy garment on and it's at this point that the angel of the Lord takes over. And he first rebukes Satan by referring him to the Father and saying, no, he, this, this choice from the Lord, from the Father, has been for his people. There is a plan. There is a way that we are going to provide acceptable clothing for them. We're going to forgive their sins stand it down and the accuser doesn't appear in the story in the vision anymore after that does he once the lord rebukes him and 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 moves past that to the plan of how they're going to um, remove the iniquity from his people we no longer hear of the accuser because there's no longer anything for him to accuse and the angel says to those who are standing there Remove those filthy garments. Now these would be other angels. And at the angel's command, at Jesus' command, they remove those filthy garments from him. And he says, I've taken your iniquity away. And they put on new, it says, pure vestments. It's not just priestly robes, though. It's, a, it's actually a different word. It's more rich, colorful. These are robes in which he's allowed to serve as the high priest, but they're more like um, celebratory robes, like one would wear to a marriage uh, supper. And Zechariah there in verse 5 is so into this vision, and he says, and, and I said, he, he actually goes, no, 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 wait, you need to put the clean turban on his head as well. 
The turban that went on the high priest's head was a special head thing covering, and on the front of it was a, a plate that was inscribed, Holy to the Lord. And Zechariah says, put that on too. Or he doesn't command them. He says, let them, please put that on too. So that in just one moment, the high priest went from this position of having filthy, horrid garments on him to being clean, acceptable, and set apart, holy to the Lord, written on his forehead. The angel of the Lord was standing by watching this, overseeing this of what would happen. The guilt was gone. The sin was gone. I have taken your iniquity away from you as one removes a coat and puts on a clean coat. And it's important to note, very important to note, that Joshua couldn't do that himself, could he? He was incapable of doing this, and that's what Satan knew. He could not do anything. It had to be done for him. And so the angel of the Lord stepped in and accomplished this, of having him clean and made holy, set apart to the Lord. Then the angel gives him a task. And he says to Joshua that he is to walk in his ways and keep his charge or his statutes or his, his requirements. And if he does that, then he will have the control. He will be, have the oversight of the temple of the Lord, over the courts of the Lord. And he'll have access among those who are standing here. And those, again, would be the angels. So he would have access into the very presence of God if he obeys and does what God asks him and commands him. The problem is that as the angel of the Lord says this, and this is a, this is a decree of the Lord of hosts, so again, we have make that distinction. The angel of the Lord, who are identifying as the Son of God before he becomes flesh, is saying, thus says the Lord, the Father of hosts, if you'll walk in my ways and keep my charge. But we know they couldn't do it before the exile, and they couldn't do it afterwards. That the people of God and the high priests simply did not keep God's ways and his statutes. In fact, uh, when this was written, in very short period of time, the high priesthood of Israel was going to become something that was a political position of power, and it would be bought and sold to the highest bidder. doesn't quite sound like what the Lord wants here. They were not able to do this. And the story doesn't get a whole lot better for them until the Lord Jesus himself comes. And so that charge given to Joshua has great hope in it, except, except they couldn't do it either. And that moves us then to the last section. The telling of the coming second Joshua. Um, these guys are going to become sign and sign men. Do you see that there uh, in verse 8? Hear now, Joshua the high priest, you and your friends who sit before you. For they are men who are a sign. 
the high priest and the men around him are presumably priests or servants of the priests are a sign of what God is going to do. That there's going to be coming a great high priest. And this great high priest is going to have gathered around him other men who are believers, who are his people. And that's going to be the sign of God's activity. It reminds me kind of in Psalm 142 where, where David the anointed is trapped in a cave. And he says to the Lord, I, I need help. There's no one on my right hand where you should be. Please come and allow me out of this prison so that I might come out and be surrounded by the righteous and we will proclaim your name. It's a very similar idea of what's happening here, that the sign will be the high priest with his faithful gathered around who are renewed and made holy. And so it's these, these people who will be the sign of what is about to happen. And what is about to happen? Well, you see there in verse, uh, in, at the end of verse 8, a servant is going to come along. The servant who is the branch and who is apparently the stone that will be set before Joshua. Three titles that refer to the Messiah, to Jesus the Christ. The first is a servant, and this comes out of Isaiah, who uses that term quite a bit. It's the suffering servant who God brings along who will who will do his will and who will be the one who stands before him and takes care of his people. He'll be a suffering servant. And this is seen in Jesus who is called the servant and is quoted out of these passages in Isaiah. One of the most famous passages um, regarding the servant comes out of Isaiah 53. Listen to what it says. Surely he, that's the servant, Surely he has borne our griefs, carried our sorrows, yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray, we have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's an... Uh, uh, a stunning passage, isn't it? Now, Zechariah is writing several centuries after Isaiah, so he would, have been a, he would have been familiar with this. So when he points back to the servant and he's talking about having iniquities removed, you can see the connection that he's making with that passage, that this servant is going to be the one who is going to remove the sin from God's people. It will be laid on him the way one puts on a garment. And so this servant is going to be the one who is going to remove the iniquity by having it put upon himself. The branch is a name, it's used, um, it's not used nearly as much in the Old Testament, it's used over in chapter 6 of this book, but the branch refers back to a man named Jesse who happened to be the father of King David. And so the branch refers to a shoot from the root of Jesse. So Jesse's family tree is going to have a shoot that comes off of it. Have you ever, have you ever seen a tree where um, it's, it's producing little trunks that come off of the main trunk? Have you seen that? And you have to keep going and clipping those things off or you're just going to have a giant thing. 
That's what this shoot is. It's that little branch, it's that little trunk that's growing off of the main root. And that branch, that shoot, is going to be Jesus. He's going to be from the root of Jesse. He's going to be a son of David, but he's not going to be the same thing. He's not going to be the same as Israel. He's going to be a whole new solution to the problem of sin. And so this branch, this shoot, is going to grow up, and he's going to be the servant who is going to have the iniquity laid on him that saves his people from their sins. He's also the stone. And there's been some question of exactly what did Zechariah mean with this stone, but I think because he's talking about the temple here in the immediate context, and in the bigger context, Zechariah is encouraging the Jews to rebuild the temple, I think that this is the cornerstone. Remember, First Peter says that Jesus is the cornerstone upon whom the whole temple is built. And so it's this stone, the Messiah, with the seven eyes of full knowledge that he's going to be God himself. With the inscription, holy to the Lord, I think it's the same inscription that would be on the turban, that this Messiah is going to come, the servant, the branch, the stone, and he is going to do in one day, what had not been done all up to this point. He will remove the iniquity of the land in a single day. And again, we know the land, he's not talking about just Joshua who had clothes taken off and new clothes put on. He's talking about the whole land that God's people will all have their iniquity forgiven in a single day. And that day, of course, is that day on Calvary where Jesus died for sins. It's not repeatable, is it? It's one day. It's not going to happen again. Once for all. Once for all time. And that reminds us of the writer of Hebrews who says again and again and again he died once for all time. In that single day, iniquity is removed. So, my friends... This is the Christmas story, isn't it? That the angel of the Lord, who we're saying is Jesus before he is born as a human, is going to come and he's going to take the place of Joshua the high priest. He's going to do for Joshua and for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's going to take the place of Joshua He's going to be the great high priest. Again, the writer of Hebrews says that, if you'd care to check that out in the New Testament. And all of the sin of those filthy garments will be put on him, just as we read out of Isaiah. That he will take on him filthy garments that he does not deserve, even though there will be no sin in him. He's the angel of the Lord, after all. And yet he will have all of those iniquities, all those transgressions, all of that laid on him, and he will pay for it with his life because the payment for sin is death. That's always been the case. That's the reason for the sacrificial system. Death brings, I mean, sin brings death. And so the angel of the Lord, our Lord Jesus, is going to take on those filthy garments. He's going to become our high priest, and in one day, he will die. And all sin will be paid for. And all that will be left are the pure 
vestments, the clean clothes, the royal, regal, celebratory clothes of us becoming something more than what we were. Just as Joshua put on vestments that were more than just clean, priestly robes, when someone trusts in Christ, the clothes that are put on them are the very son and daughter of God himself. The Joshua who saves has come. That was the point of Matthew 1.21. Remember when, jo- when Joseph had the dream? And the angel said, Take Mary to be your wife, because the child that is in her has been conceived by the Holy Spirit. And she's going to give birth to a son, and you are going to name him Joshua. Or Jesus in the Greek. And he will save his people from their sins. You see, Christmas has come. And so even though we look forward to it and expect it each year, and and whether it brings joy or it brings tinges of sadness, it has come already in this point, that this Christmas, when the incarnate angel of the Lord, the Son of God, became human and took on human form, that was the beginning of the plan. And we celebrate that. If, if what we do is wrap ourselves up in the presence and the tinsel and the trappings and the, everything that the Grinch says in that song, we've missed Christmas. Because this vision is what Christmas was about. That God's people stood there in filthy garments, separated from him, under the right accusations of the adversary Satan, And the angel of the Lord stepped in and replays this whole vision for us with himself as a savior and the remover of sins. Paul, in a great hymn in Philippians, says this, that Jesus Christ, who was in the form of God, didn't think that equality with God was something to be held on to, but he emptied himself and took the form of a servant being born in the likeness of men and being found in human form he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death even death on a cross and therefore God has highly exalted him given him a name above every name that's the Christmas story that is the hope for the sinful that it is at this time of year that we celebrate that the angel of the Lord took on human flesh in the form of a servant to do for us what we could not do for ourselves and have our sin removed so that we might have a clean, holy to the Lord status before him. So brothers and sisters, as we celebrate Christmas, let's remember what it is that we're celebrating. It's not the expectation that there will be some other way to have joy or good cheer, but actually the joy that someone has visited us from on high from another realm who sees us though we cannot see them and has saved us if we will trust in him if we will follow him as our Lord and as the Savior Jesus Christ let's take just a few minutes ponder that in our hearts and then we'll sing together our closing song
Amen. Let's now 